All Bones Considered, podcast number six for October 2019. Fathers and Sons, Thomas and Albert Sully, Robert and Francis Patterson, Peter, George, and Harry Widener. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 30 minutes and find out about several of our permanent residents, portrait artist Thomas Sully and his military son, General Albert Sully, Generals Robert and Francis Patterson, both with rather tarnished military records, and Gilded Age capitalist extraordinaire Peter Widener and his son George and grandson Harry, who went down on the USS Titanic. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Thomas Sully is a popular stop on Laurel Hill Cemetery tours, but I was taken by the impressive plot of General Albert Sully and decided to research him on my own. It was a terrific venture. The magnificent lion guarding the tomb of General Robert Patterson is always an eye-catcher, but his son Francis deserved further research, and I found the answer to a long-lingering riddle. I didn't have much to add to the story of the Wideners, at one time one of the wealthiest families in America, but I decided to take another look. I hope you enjoy this exploration of the familiar and the not-so-familiar on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Philadelphia was a Quaker city, and the typical Quaker had no interest in fine art. Nonetheless, the city gave birth to some of the best-known American artists of the 18th and 19th century. During the time of the Revolution, the best-known portrait painter of the era was Charles Wilson Peale, who also produced a whole family of painters, Raphael, Rembrandt, Rubens, and Titian. Titian has a simple grave marker in a family plot in South Laurel Hill in Lot 874. Charles Wilson Peale died in 1827 and is buried at St. Peter's Episcopal Churchyard in Old City, a churchyard which also contains the remains of Commodore Stephen Decatur, killed in a duel in 1820, and Vice President George M. Dallas, who died in 1865. Another Revolutionary War painter that people remember was Gilbert Stuart, who spent his career in Boston. After Peale, Thomas Sully took the role as Philadelphia's most sought portrait painter. Born in England, Sully settled in Philadelphia in 1806 at age 23. He primarily painted portraits, and by the time of his death in 1872, he had produced more than 2,600 paintings. His 1824 portraits of John Quincy Adams, who later became president, 
and Marquis de Lafayette became famous and brought him more business. You would know him from his 1828 portrait of Andrew Jackson, which was the basis for Jackson's picture on the American $20 bill since 1928. In 1837, Sully accepted an invitation to do a portrait of Princess Alexandrina Victoria of Kent. But before the painting could start, Victoria's uncle, King William IV, died, and she ascended to the throne, where she would serve for more than 60 years and inspire and oversee what we now know as the Victorian era. One of Sully's daughters, Blanche, also buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill, accompanied him to London. The new queen, of course, had no time to sit for a complete formal portrait. Thomas painted her face from life and then put Blanche in the royal crown and robes for the remainder of the painting. As far as we know, she is the only American ever to wear this royal accoutrement. We are used to seeing photos of Victoria as an older, rather dowdy, dumpy dowager. Sully's 1837 painting shows otherwise. She was a beautiful young woman, literally portrayed as ascending to the throne on steps and looking back over her right shoulder. It is a stunning portrait. Sully liked painting famous people. He portrayed Thomas Jefferson at least eight times, but he loved painting beautiful women even more. British actress Frances Fanny Kemble, grandmother of author and lawyer Owen Wister, buried in section J206 at Laurel Hill, was a favorite subject. Another favorite actress was Charlotte Cushman, whom he painted as far more attractive than she was in real life. Cushman specialized in playing men's roles and seduced another of Sully's daughters, Rosalie, also buried in the family plot. In 1844, Rosalie noted in her journal that she and Cushman were married. The next year, Cushman deserted Rosalie for a European tour and Rosalie faded away dying in 1847 at age 29. Her own budding painting career cut short. Thomas worked in oils. His son Alfred worked primarily in watercolors. Born in 1820, Alfred acquired an appointment to West Point, where his 1841 classmates included Don Carlos Buell, John Reynolds, and Schuyler Hamilton. Alfred pursued his military career with assignments in Mexico, the Plains States, and the California Territory. In 1846, he served under General Winfield Scott at the Battle of Tampico. After sailing around the Cape, he settled in Monterey, California in 1849, a significant year in California history. While out west, he lived with a Spanish nobleman, Don Manuel de Guerra and fell in love with his teenage daughter, Donna Manuela. The couple's elopement to marriage is thought to be the first elopement in California history. Alfred's father-in-law accepted him as a member of the family, and Alfred planned to resign his commission to be an artist and a dedicated family man. But in 1851, Donna Manuela presented him with a son, then died a short time later, of cholera. His grief deepened a few weeks later when his mother-in-law, who had been serving as wet nurse, accidentally smothered the child in her sleep. Alfred stayed busy in the army and eventually rose to the rank of brigadier general. 
1862, he was assigned leadership of the 1st Minnesota Volunteers, but was removed from command when he refused to put down a mutiny among volunteers who had served their two-year terms and wished to be relieved of duty. Although he was not court-martialed, he was banished out west for the remainder of the war. The 1st Minnesota, of course, suffered 82% casualty rates on the second day at Gettysburg. His career as an Indian fighter was mixed. He led several slaughters of Native Americans, but came to respect the Sioux tribes where he was assigned, and even married a daughter of one of the tribal leaders of the Yankton Sioux. It is said she reminded him of his late Mexican wife. Alfred Sully's daughter, Mary Sully, was known as Akasita Wynn, soldier woman. She married Reverend Philip Joseph Deloria, an Episcopalian priest, also known as Tipisapa Black Lodge, a leader in the Yankton Nakota Band of the Sioux Nation. Tipisapa is featured as one of the 98 Saints of the Ages at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., as the first Dakota Christian minister to his own people. Among their descendants are Yankton Sioux Ella Deloria, an ethnologist, and her nephew, Vine Deloria Jr., a scholar, writer, author of Custer Died for Your Sins, and a Native American activist. Alfred died at Fort Vancouver, Washington Territory in 1879, at age 58, seven years after his father. Thomas, Alfred, Rosalie, and Blanche are buried together in the family plot A41 in Laurel Hill North. Locally, you can see several of Thomas Sully's works at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, Independence Hall, and at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Thomas's palette, easel, and paintbrushes are maintained at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. But as far as I can tell, Alfred's watercolors and oils have remained in the hands of family members and are not on display at any local museum. The Sullys are a fascinating Philadelphia family who contributed much to the history of this country. If you go to Wikipedia and enter what sounds like a rather common name, Robert Patterson, it will take you to General Robert Patterson, who is buried at Laurel Hill Central. If you're walking south on the rivermost path in Laurel Hill, you will stop in your tracks when you see the Magisterial Lion Sculptor by John Lackmare, situated next to the smaller but no less impressive female nude by Joseph Alexis Bailey, with two L's. This site is considered an anchoring point of Millionaire's Row, and it overlooks the burial site of three Civil War generals, Major General Robert Patterson and his sons, Brigadier General Francis Engel Patterson and Brevet Brigadier General Robert Emmett Patterson. Robert is lionized, pun intended, in the cemetery, yet he and Francis were both failed soldiers. And Robert made his wealth from slave labor used to run his sugar and cotton plantations in the South. Robert Patterson was born in Ireland in 1792. His family was banished to the United States for insurrection only seven years later. But Robert adapted quickly to his new country. He attended public school and he worked in a public accounting house as a clerk. At age 20, he volunteered for service during the War of 1812 and rose from corporal to colonel 
in the 2nd Pennsylvania Militia before joining the Army, where he was discharged in 1815 as a captain. 1812 is one of the three dates engraved on the foot of his tombstone. As a civilian, he invested initially in a sugar plantation in Louisiana and then in several cotton mills and cotton plantations where he made his fortune. In 1828, he was one of five Colonel Pattersons who nominated Andrew Jackson for president at the Philadelphia Convention. Jackson and his vice presidential candidate, John C. Calhoun, who had been vice president under the prior administration of John Quincy Adams, ran against Adams and his new vice presidential candidate, Richard Rush, who's buried at Laurel Hill North in section P37 and 40. Patterson served many years as the commander of the Pennsylvania State Militia. In 1838, he led his troops to end the anti-abolition riots in Philadelphia, which led to the destruction of Pennsylvania Hall. Pennsylvania Hall was a magnificent structure that was dedicated on May 14, 1838, at the corner of 6th and Race. Four days later, May 18th, it was not much more than a smoky pile of rubble and ash. In 1844, Patterson helped to put down the Philadelphia Bible riots against Irish Catholics, which resulted in the destruction of St. Michael's and St. Augustine's churches. The first riot took place in Kensington in May. Another took place in Southwark in July. On each occasion, General Patterson led militia into combat with rioting civilians, leading to the loss of dozens of lives on both sides. In 1854, of course, both Kensington and Southwark were incorporated into the city of Philadelphia. At the outbreak of the Mexican-American War, Patterson was commissioned a Major General of Volunteers and commanded the 2nd Division Army of Occupation during the Tampico Expedition. He was considered for command of the expedition to Veracruz, which eventually went to Winfield Scott. He was, however, placed in command of the expedition's volunteer division and saw action during the siege of Veracruz and at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, where he was wounded. Veracruz was the battle where Laurel Hill resident George Decatur Twiggs fell on August 12, 1847, and was buried in the family plot, Section C-20, with his father Levi Twiggs, killed at the Battle of Chapultepec just a month later. We will hear more about them in a future episode of All Bones Considered. Patterson led the American pursuit of the Mexican army and was the first to enter Jalapa. While the U.S. Army was stationed there, Patterson returned to the United States with other volunteer units whose enlistment time had expired. The second date on his tombstone is 1847. He then resumed his business interests in Pennsylvania, where he acquired 30 cotton mills and became quite wealthy in these industries so dependent on slave labor. I did try to find records that he actually owned slaves. He owned sugar plantations. He owned cotton plantations. I can find no direct evidence that he owned slaves, uh, but I must assume that was the case. He was also an influential figure in Philadelphia politics. The American Civil War brought Patterson back to active military service. He was appointed Major General of Pennsylvania Volunteers and commanded the Department of Pennsylvania and the Army of the Shenandoah. 
1861, Winfield Scott, now General-in-Chief of the Union Army, gave Patterson vague orders to retake Harper's Ferry. Patterson failed to immediately act on these orders, was outmaneuvered after the Battle of Hoke's Run, and a Confederate army at Winchester, Virginia, under Brigadier General Joseph Johnston, was able to march without interference to reinforce the Confederates under Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard at the First Battle of Bull Run. Johnston did, however, declare that Patterson's army had largely deterred him from pursuing the shattered and disorganized Union troops as they retreated to Washington after the battle. Patterson was widely criticized for his failure to contain the enemy forces and was mustered out of the army with an honorable discharge in late July 1861, only three months after his commission. This explains the third date on his tombstone. 1861. He was in his late 60s at the time. Robert's son Francis was born in 1821. He entered the army during the Mexican-American War and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the first U.S. artillery in 1847 and promoted to first lieutenant later that year. After the war, Patterson transferred to the 9th U.S. Infantry where he was promoted to captain in March 1855. He resigned May 1, 1857. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Patterson rejoined the Army and was commissioned Colonel of the 17th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry on April 25, 1861. He was promoted to Brigadier General of the United States Volunteers on April 11, 1862, and placed in command of the 3rd Brigade, 2nd Division, 3 Corps, Army of the Potomac. Patterson led his brigade at Williamsburg and Seven Pines, but had to relinquish command due to illness, apparently typhoid fever. He took a leave of absence on June 7th, and so missed the Seven Days Battle entirely. By July, he was well enough to take on administrative duties at Army Headquarters. Patterson did not return to field command until the fall, when he resumed command of his old brigade, now in Daniel Sickles' division. Recurrent ill health continued to plague him. At Catlett Station, Patterson withdrew his brigade when he heard an unconfirmed report of a Confederate troop presence nearby. Sickles accused him of retreating without orders and called for a military board of inquiry to court-martial him. But on November 2nd, Patterson was found dead in his tent of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest. At first, it was not clear whether his death was accidental or a suicide. The initial report stated, quote, It was the habit of General Patterson to place a revolver under his pillow on retiring for the night in his tent. About daylight on Saturday morning, he awoke and displaced the revolver from under the pillow on which he slept with his right hand, and while changing it to the left, probably with the intention of hanging the weapon up near his couch, it exploded. The barrel at the moment pointed towards the person of the reclining man, and the whole of its contents were received in his left breast, passing, it is believed, through the heart and causing instant death." Unquote. But I found an article in the New York Times from November of 1862. Quote, it has been ascertained that General Francis E. Patterson, lately commanding the 3rd Brigade of the Army of the Potomac, who shot himself on last Saturday morning, 
committed the act while under a temporary fit of insanity. Captain Vreeland of the 8th New Jersey was with him in his tent, but so suddenly was the rash act committed that he could not stay his hand." End quote. To add insult to injury, the New Orleans Times-Picayune reported that no announcement was made to the Patterson's family of his death. The first they heard of the incident was when the body was delivered to the family home at 13th and Locust, which is now the site of the Pennsylvania Historical Society. The irony of claiming Patterson's death due to, quote, temporary insanity, end quote, is not lost on students of American history. The defense was first successfully used in a court of law by U.S. Congressman Daniel Sickles of New York in 1859 after he had killed his wife's lover, Philip Barton Key, son of Francis Scott Key, composer of the National Anthem. Sickles, of course, was the officer who recommended Francis Patterson for court-martial. The father, Robert, died in 1881 at age 89 and joined his son, Francis, at Laurel Hill. His funeral was a stately affair. Among his pallbearers were General and past President Ulysses S. Grant, General William Tecumseh Sherman, General Winfield Scott Hancock, and General Fitzjohn Porter. Also among the attendees and the mourners was Daniel Sickles. Whatever the sins committed by Robert and Francis Patterson, they had been forgiven. I asked you a little while ago to go to Wikipedia for Robert Patterson. Now, go back and put in the name Widener, W-I-D-E-N-E-R. Among your choices will be the Widener Library of Harvard University and Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania. You will also get Peter Errol Brown Widener, 1834 to 1915, George Dunton Widener, 1861 to 1912, Harry Elkins Widener, 1885 to 1912, among many others. Go to the Laurel Hill Cemetery app and put in Widener. You will get 10 people of that name in the mausoleum on Millionaire's Row at lot K338, plus nine others scattered across the grounds. Since this podcast is about fathers and sons, I will talk primarily about Peter, George, and Harry. Peter A.B. Widener was born in Philadelphia in 1834 to a father who made bricks for a living. If you have read Nancy Heinzen's marvelous history of Rittenhouse Square, entitled The Perfect Square, there were many brick-making concerns concentrated in that area. Peter then became a butcher boy, and by saving and borrowing, he started a mutton shop, which he quickly turned into a chain of meat stores. Peter then became a leader of the 20th Ward. During the Civil War, through his political connections, he was awarded a government contract to supply mutton to all Union troops within a 10-mile radius of Philadelphia. This earned him $50,000 in revenue, a fortune. Peter pursued politics and from 1867 to 1870 was a member of the Philadelphia Board of Education. When the city treasurer was jailed in 1873 for conspiracy, the Republican Party appointed Peter to fill the remainder of the term. He was then elected to that position the following year. 
During this time, he continued to run his chain of butcher shops, and in 1875, he, William Elkins, and political boss William Kemble pooled their money to purchase street railway franchises and make some other investments. They founded the Philadelphia Traction Company in 1883, and through their connections, expanded their streetcar holdings to Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore over the next several years until they operated more than 500 miles of track. Peter invested wisely. He was an organizer of the U.S. Steel Company, the American Tobacco Company, and International Mercantile Marine, IMM, owner of the White Star Line and the Titanic, along with J.P. Morgan. He soon became one of Philadelphia's true robber barons, and he and Elkins became incredibly wealthy. He spent much of his money on art, with a particular liking for Rembrandt and Rubens. He used them to decorate his mansion at Linwood Hall, a 110-room neoclassical revival mansion in Elkins Park, a city founded by his business partner. The mansion was designed by Horace Trumbauer, whom you heard about in the September 2019 podcast of All Bones Considered. When Peter died in 1915, he had collected one of the largest and finest private collections of European paintings in America. Peter A.B. Widener was one of the wealthiest men in American history, but his money could not protect him or his family from the tragedy that occurred in April of 1912. George Dunton Widener was the oldest son of Peter. He was born in Philadelphia in June 1861, shortly after the start of the Civil War. He grew up knowing great wealth, and in 1883, at age 22, married Eleanor Lukens Elkins, age 21, daughter of his father's business partner, William Lukens Elkins. Two years later, their son Harry Elkins Widener was born. George joined his father's business and took over running of the Philadelphia Traction Company, Land Title Bank and Trust Company, Electric Storage Battery Company, and Portland Cement Company. He was also a director of the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. In 1912, George and his wife and their son Harry traveled to Paris with intentions to find a chef for Widener's new Philadelphia hotel, the Ritz-Carlton at Broad and Walnut, also designed by Horace Trumbauer. 27-year-old Harry accompanied them to seek new books for his burgeoning collection. The return voyage from Cherbourg was on the USS Titanic. Remember that his father was a member of the board of the Fidelity Trust Company of Philadelphia, the bank that controlled IMM, the owners of the White Star Line. On the afternoon of April 14th, Widener and his wife were standing on the promenade deck talking to J. Bruce Ismay, English businessman who served as chairman and managing director of the White Star Line when Captain Edward Smith passed them on his way aft. Without comment, he handed Ismay one of the ice warnings from the White Star Liner Baltic. Ismay put the message in his pocket and headed below decks. Later that day, Captain Smith joined a dinner party given in his honor by the Wideners in the ship's a la carte restaurant. A little before 9 p.m., the captain excused himself and headed for the bridge. After the ladies had retired, the men sat in the smoking room talking. They were still there when the iceberg was struck at 11.40 p.m. ship's time. When told to abandon ship, George and Harry escorted Eleanor to lifeboat four. 
While the lifeboats continued loading, Colonel Archibald Gracie observed George Widener leaning against a railing in deep discussion with John B. Thayer, director and second vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. But both father and son went down with the ship, as did Captain Smith. Eleanor survived. George's and Harry's bodies, if recovered, were never identified, but they do have spaces in the family mausoleum. The death of his son and grandson was said to devastate Peter Widener. He died just three short years later. Eleanor Elkins Widener probably deserves a podcast of her own. She and her maid, Emily Geiger, were placed on lifeboat four, and after eight hours adrift, were rescued by the Carpathia, along with her $750,000 strand of pearls. Her $250,000 strand went down with the ship. After their arrival in New York, Mrs. Widener and Miss Geiger were met by a private train, which took them back to Philadelphia. After losing her husband and son to the sea, Mrs. Widener devoted herself to charitable work. A lasting monument to her generosity stands as the Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library at Harvard, for which she made a large donation. At the library dedication in 1915, Mrs. Widener met the geographer and explorer and physician, Dr. Alexander Hamilton Rice of New York City, 13 years her junior. And then she fell in love with him and she married him. In the coming years, she built him a boat and went with him on several expeditions in South America, where she was once rumored to have been eaten by cannibals. They also traveled extensively in Europe and India. Eleanor died in Paris on July 13, 1937, at age 75, while shopping in a department store. She, too, is buried in the Widener family mausoleum on Millionaire's Row, just up the hill from the Elkins Mausoleum. At the time of her death, Eleanor's worth was listed at nearly $11 million. Widener University was named for Eleanor, but did not gain its name until 1972, 35 years after her death. The Widener family continued to have a say in contemporary Philadelphia. The Widener Memorial School, established in 1902, continues to serve physically handicapped students as does the Widener Memorial Foundation. The Widener Free Library serves North Philadelphia. George Dutton Widener's grandson was Fitz Eugene Dixon, Jr., owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and part owner of the Eagles, the Phillies, and the Flyers. Peter's son, Joseph Widener, became one of the great thoroughbred racing breeders in the country. Joseph's granddaughter, Joan, was a founding benefactor of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and the Newport, Rhode Island mansion Miramar was a Widener family summer home, and so on and so on. I hope you enjoyed your father's and son's tour of the Laurel Hills. I obviously could have talked about a lot more people. Marine Major Levi Twiggs, his son Lieutenant George Decatur Twiggs, buried in Laurel Hills Section C, Lot 20, whom I will talk about in a future episode. Entertainment mogul J. Fred Zimmerman and his son Charles tragically killed on stage in a dress rehearsal, buried in the family vault just next to the bridge to South. Next time in the November edition of All Bones Considered, it's Playball. Baseball stories about Benjamin Franklin Scheib, namesake for the park that eventually became Connie Mack Stadium, 
at 21st and Lehigh. Harry Wright, an English-born sportsman who was the first to make baseball into a business and is in the Hall of Fame. And Harry Callis, with one of the most distinctive markers in either cemetery. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep your body and soul together until next time on Old Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. I used a lot of references for this show. If you want more on Thomas Sully, I recommend two articles. One of them is actually more than 100 years old. It's simply called Thomas Sully. It's by Henry Budd in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, volume 42, number 2, 1918, pages 97 to 126. Then there's Queen Victoria and Mr. Sully by Albert Ten Eyck Gardner from the Metropolitan Museum of Art Bulletin, New Series, Volume 5, Number 5, January 1947, pages 144 to 148. Albert Sully's definitive biography is called No Tears for the General and was written by his grandson Langdon Sully in 1974. But it was a little skimpy on the reasons for his banishment to the Plains States. General Robert Patterson was excellent at beating his own drum. There are many articles on the anti-abolition riots and the nativist riot, but it is unclear whether the many civilian casualties were justified. His Civil War experience is barely mentioned in articles and I could find no references talking about his relationships with the slave-driven cotton plantations in the South, even though he owned 30 cotton mills. Whatever his faults, they were forgiven at his death, as can be witnessed by his pallbearers. Son Francis was even more mysterious, and I had to depend on contemporary newspaper articles to find out about his death, long thought to be accidental. Finally, for Peter A.B. Widener, I recommend, quote, the Philadelphia Traction Monopoly and the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1874, the Prostitution of an Ideal, end quote, by Harold E. Cox and John F. Myers. From Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, Volume 35, Number 4, October 1968, pages 406 to 423. And 
The Last of the American Versailles, the Widener Collection at Linwood Hall by Esme Quadback from Simiolus, S-I-M-I-O-L-U-S, Netherlands Quarterly for the History of Art, Volume 29, Numbers 1 and 2, 2002, pages 42 to 96, plus many contemporary newspaper articles. Material on son George and grandson Harry came primarily from the massively researched online Encyclopedia Titanica and Titanic Wiki, as well as some contemporary newspapers.